Before we get started, After the Monuments is proud to thank Team Henry Enterprises for their support of our show. Team Henry Enterprises is a black-owned contracting firm specializing in office, retail, medical, multifamily, and higher education construction of all scopes and sizes. In the wake of the George Floyd protest, Team Henry is the very firm contracted by the city of Richmond to take down the Confederate monuments in Richmond and by many other municipalities to remove other Confederate monuments around Virginia and throughout the Southeast. Learn more about Team Henry and how they can help your community rebuild, renovate, or design at TeamHenryENT.com. I'm Kelly Lemon. And I'm Michael Paul Williams. And welcome to the After the Monuments podcast, where we look at events and news about race in a historical context and see how, too often, history repeats itself. We are delighted to have um, Jason Cameras, um, Superintendent of Richmond Public Schools, with us today. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, we're at a, an extremely interesting moment in public education in Richmond, and somewhat use a word other than interesting. <laughs> um, chaotic, for one. But um, we have seen um, um, recently the purging of uh, the State Board of Education of three exemplary members, uh, probably as a precursor to uh, a political remake of that board. Uh, we uh, are seeing uh, teachers um, under siege um, from the government um, as the governor of Virginia has um, instituted a tip line so that students or whomever might report teachers whose lessons run afoul of the prevailing right-wing political correctness. Uh, I'm, I'm calling it as I see it here. <laughs> on, dis <clears throat> on discussions of race, um, we've seen... A mandate, a, a, a mandate um, from the governor um, to remove mandatory masking or any possibility of mandatory masking in school districts. So we have all these things. We have um, books under assault um, by parents as part of this um, new parents' rights movement that seemed to um, come up out of whole cloth during the gubernatorial election. Books are being attacked, um, many books of color and many on LGBTQ issues are being attacked. Um, uh, parents are attempting to ban them. At least one school board member or one uh, elected official in uh, Northern Virginia, I believe, has attempted or even spoke of burning books. So this is where we are. Um, what historical precedents do you see for this moment we are experiencing right now in education? I don't know of any historical precedent in my lifetime uh, that is analogous to the assault on free thought, truth, and what I believe is the core mission of education, which is to help students learn to think critically, make sense of the world around them, and be equipped to make a better world uh, for themselves and their children and their children's children. You know, I think everything that you listed, quite frankly, is outrageous. It, in my mind, runs counter to the very point of education. So um, I don't know if it, uh, for those who, uh, went to school during the McCarthy era. Perhaps there is some uh, analogy there. But again, in my lifetime, in my time in education, I've never seen anything like it. Do you see, in the way this is playing out, a manifestation, 21st century manifestation of the sort of racial resentment that um, had um, Virginia and, and other states clinging to segregated schools? Um, uh, it seems like that having been deemed unconstitutional now, we're trying to segregate how race is taught in school. 
we are seeing not just in Virginia, but um, in numerous states, legislation attempts to legislate a motion uh, to um, strip to its core, protect the feelings of white students in the teaching of systemic racism or lessons about systemic racism. Do you see that is uh, a continuum of how race is played out at all in, in, in education? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is an extension of the same injustices that have plagued Virginia, Richmond, the, the country uh, since 1619. Look, here's the, here's the bottom line truth. The modern institution of slavery in the United States was created by the Virginia General Assembly. The entire state's uh, infrastructure and economy was built literally on the backs of enslaved Africans. If people are uncomfortable talking about that, in my mind, we should lean into that, not absolve people of uh, experiencing those emotions. I don't think anybody is saying that uh, you know, a, a current ninth grader who happens to be white is responsible for what happened in 1619. But if that young man or young woman uh, feels uh, discomforted by that, I, I think that's an important experience for them to go through and to process with their class, with their teachers. And hey, look, I say that as a white man leading a school system of largely uh, black and Latino children, um, I want my own two boys who are white presenting, uh, who are RPS students, to have those conversations with their peers. If we don't, I think we have completely failed them and all students in Richmond. Well, as you know, Virginia has a, a less than illustrious history of teaching history um, dishonestly. During my education in the 1960s and 70s, the textbooks were filled with, with lies and myths about the happy slave. Um, do you fear that we could be going back to that sort of thing in the direction that education is going? Well, like, I'll say this. As long as I'm the superintendent of Richmond Public Schools, that ain't going to happen here in Richmond. In fact, we're leaning the other direction. We launched a course uh, here for our high school students called Real Richmond. It teaches the good, the bad, and the ugly about Richmond so that our students are able to fully understand the history of this city in all of its horrid aspects and all of its beautiful aspects so that they can then take that and create the Richmond uh, of tomorrow and the future. So we are going to continue to lean into these conversations. I do worry outside of places like Richmond and, and other pockets in the state that yes, we are going to head back towards an anodized uh, sort of, well, quite frankly, whitewashed version of Virginia's history, which I don't think serves anybody well, including white children. Have you heard anything anecdotally um, or experienced anything in Richmond or in um, other jurisdictions regarding this tip line? I call it a snitch line. <laughs> um, well, look, I think there is a chilling effect from the tip line where a teacher who might otherwise really want to talk about these issues now is wondering, hey, am I going to wind up on the tip line? So I think whether they do or not is almost beside the point. It's the chilling effect it has on teachers and their decisions, the hundreds of decisions they make about the kind of conversations they want to have, the content to teach. Um, as for the 
you know, actual efficacy of the uh, of the chip line, I think it's uh, completely ludicrous and have encouraged folks to write in with shout outs uh, for their teachers. Um, and I called on the Department of Education to publish those shout outs uh, in, in support of teachers who are leaning into these topics. Yeah, and I tried to um, check out one of the band, one of the books that was attacked in Hanover and I couldn't find the book in Henrico Public Libraries. So <clears throat> I think these things actually redound uh, sometimes to the benefit of authors who, whose works might get more publicity than if they weren't under attack. What do you think is the calculus here? What is the end game? What is the end goal um, to, to, to um, undertake an exercise like this where we're trying to effectively um, make history, uh, to whitewash history? You know, honestly, I, I hesitate to try to inhabit the minds of those who have uh, led these efforts. My, my speculation is to preserve a white-centered narrative about the United States. Um, and, um, you know, I think that has all kinds of tentacles that affect not just, not just history, but economics and politics and, um, and, and also an assault on just basic truths. Um, and we've seen that play out in life-threatening ways with the pandemic, which has disproportionately impacted students and families of color. We saw that here in Richmond. So this isn't just about um, teaching history, which, of course, is extremely important, but it quite literally has life and death consequences. So what can we do about this, all of this? Yeah, well, look, I think, number one, we got to keep calling it out. Um, every single day, we have to speak the truth, um, however difficult it is. And there are a lot of difficult things in, in our past and in our present. I think we have to keep talking about, this isn't just about 1619 or 1865 or Jim Crow. It's also about how all of those things impact today. Uh, there's a reason that I-95 goes right through Jackson Ward. And it wasn't an accident. Nope. Uh, it was because the federal government decided, hey, we can displace a black community, um, which will be much easier than displacing a white community. Our children need to know that. Our citizens need to know that so that when the next project comes down the pike, they have that context so they can speak out about what, uh, what should be. There's no accident that all of the public housing or, or most of the public housing units were all built together in one area, um, basically segregated off from the city. Uh, it's also no accident that none of them have fiber optic coming to them. Uh, and so it was extremely difficult to ensure uh, that they had internet access during the pandemic. It's no accident that health outcomes are different for white Americans and black Americans based upon all of the uh, underlying conditions that many Americans of color have, merely from the stress of living as a person of color in the United States. All of these things are connected to our past. And so if we're going to improve education, if we're going to improve healthcare, housing, transportation, basic quality of life, which everybody aspires to, we have to know how we got here. We have to know what the connection is so that we can change it. Jason, um, in, in terms of the media, um, and that's who we are, um, we cover Richmond Public Schools often and a lot. How important is it for us um, to make sure that 
the correct stories, but the stories are being told about what's happening within RPS or just in education in general. Yes. Uh, well, look, you know, I don't love being in the paper <laughs> almost every day, but uh, having said that, I do appreciate how the RTD in particular does focus on schools. And I will just say, if I can soapbox for a moment, I am dismayed that it appears that the ownership of the paper has uh, eliminated a full-time education reporter. I think that is a huge mistake. Um, look, we are a public entity serving the people, and the more eyes on the work we do, the better. And uh, you know, it's one of the things I love about Richmond is, is how seriously it takes issues of schools. Now, I will say, um, I do think there is room uh, to cover more than just the day-to-day -day school board meeting or this controversy of the day and so on. I think there's opportunity to do more in-depth analyses of some of these systemic issues and how they affect kids. And so that's what I would like to see more coverage of um, to help the broader public understand the connections between the past and the present. And then what do we do about it and how do we help improve it? The um, term parents' rights came up during the um, gubernatorial campaign and, and seemed to be a winner and, and continues to, to resonate with a lot of folks on the right post-election. One thing that's disappointed me, it's been my observation that, that parents' rights um, refers almost exclusively to a single cohort of parents, white, suburban, right wing in their politics. Uh, why aren't we hearing more from the parents who, whose point of view is different? It, it seems like parent has come to stand for a thing that is, that is only partially true. Where are the parents who don't like their books banned, or their children's books banned? Um, where are the parents who um, desperately supported having a masking option in schools? Where are the parents who want their children to, to have a holistic school lesson on, on racism? Uh, it seems like they've been overshadowed uh, by the parents on the right. What, I mean, just any thoughts on that? You look, I've learned in this role, people are far more likely to come out and speak on things that they are against than things that they are for. Uh, so I do think that is one challenge that we face broadly. But two, <clears throat> look, let's just call it what it is. Um, the media is more likely to cover white parents arguing about a particular issue than they are parents of color. Um, I just, all you have to do is watch, uh, watch the news to see that. Um, that's one. Two, a lot of Let's just take some families here in Richmond, for example. Um, a number of our families of color are also uh, low-income families. And what that means is they are literally struggling to get through the day, literally struggling just to take care of their kids, pay the rent, hopefully put food on the table. And so the idea of taking two, four hours out of their Monday night to go to a school board meeting to talk about why they want masks or why Toni Morrison's beloved should be in the curriculum is honestly a nice idea, but just not going to happen. Not because of a lack of desire or will or agency. It's just life is hard 
uh, growing up when you don't have a lot of means and you pile on top of that all the other institutional uh, systemic racist uh, uh, policies and, and issues that folks of color face. So honestly, I think that's what it comes down to. If you are of means uh, and you have the ability to come out and do that, uh, you're more likely to do so. And again, I think the media institutionally pays more attention to white voices than it does to voices of color. Jason, our, our podcast is um, about the monuments. It's well after the monuments, um, things that happen before the monuments were put up. But why are we still dealing with some of these things after these monuments have come down? Um, before you jumped on, Michael Paul and I were kind of getting into a discussion about school boards um, and how maybe Richmond's might be a little bit different um, in their process um, and their their election than some of these other schools. And as I am, you know, highlighting what the journalist says, say it seems like um, Chesterfield and Hanover are a little bit more um, vocal when it comes to the parents, as you were kind of getting into, than um, Richmond is. Can you talk about the uh, the importance of the school board and how the, the politics of that affects how you do your job? Well, the, the school board is incredibly important. They are the democratic representatives of the people of Richmond uh, to help govern and guide uh, the school division. So um, absolutely indispensable to, to the work that we do. I think, you know, one of the key differences uh, between us and, and the counties is um, uh, largely speaking, I think our students and families and staff on many of these issues uh, are a little bit more united uh, than they might be in the counties. And so I do think that factors into how some of these issues uh, play out uh, over the last couple of years. A, a little bit about um, school to prison pipeline. Um, I saw legislation um, in, in, in the General Assembly that, that seems to want to mandate a certain level of security in our schools. Just your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm strongly against that. Uh, I saw a bill making its way through to require a police officer in every school. You know, we had a, a debate about school resource officers here in Richmond. Uh, there wasn't support uh, to uh, make the move away from those individuals. Um, and so they still uh, exist in our schools. I will say, knowing many of them, they, they work admirably in our schools. That being said, I fundamentally believe the institution of police just should not be in schools. And so, look, we're going to continue to work on that. I do think this is part of the same kind of the same right wing uh, uh, narrative about uh, needing uh, a greater police presence to monitor uh, what is going on. Yeah, I think it's part of the just that broader kind of assault on uh the sort of culture of schools. Everything we're talking about, it, it seems like to a certain extent is robbing school districts of a certain amount of autonomy. Um, if they're if the state is mandating security levels, if the state is manda mandating what can be taught in the classroom or, or uh, to what extent or or tipping the balance um, toward stuff not being taught. How, how do you feel? I mean, you're not a school board member. You're obviously the, the superintendent. But how do you feel about just what seems to be in the state usurping the authority of localities on education? 
Well, look, I, I certainly uh, believe in, in local governance and, um, and certainly not pleased with what's coming down from the state. I do want to be intellectually honest on this one, though. I do think sometimes uh, when we don't like what's happening locally, we appeal to state or federal authorities. And I think segregation is a, is a perfect example of that. That being said, uh, you know, generally speaking, I uh, absolutely believe that uh, the people who are closest uh, to the ground are, are the ones who can make the best possible decisions. And so, yes, I would like um, the state to get less involved uh, in the education of, of Richmond's children. There has been a, an enduring hostility on the right that I've observed anyway toward education in general, um, higher education in general. I think they view it as a training ground of, of, for, for liberals, um, for progressives, and, and they feel like conservative voices are under assault in higher education. You know, so that is a battleground also. Um, why do you think it's played out that way, that um, people on the political right look askance at education, seemingly from K through, through college? Um, the whole critical race theory piece, which um, really is a law school uh, pe pedagogy, is just has, has somehow become a K through 12 issue. How do you think this has happened, and why do you think this is? Well, the whole CRT thing is is frankly absurd. As you noted, it's a law school or graduate school framework. It's not taught in any K 12 Virginia schools that I know of. But it was a very convenient and effective dog whistle to represent basically anything that talks honestly about race. And look, I think after the Trump administration and its legacy of, of permission to lots of people who I think previously were harboring a sense of white grievance, and now they had permission to kind of express it more uh, deliberately and assertively, I think this is the, the outcome of all of that. I do worry about the state and, and the country. I don't see that abating. Um, it seems to be becoming even harder and more concretized in the public consciousness. And so, you know, I, I, I am generally a very optimistic person um, but I don't see that uh, changing anytime soon. And it's why having really honest conversations in schools where ideally you're bringing kids together of different backgrounds in working through these things is so vitally important. Yeah, you raise um, Donald Trump. Um, the language divisive concepts is actually something that stems from an executive order that he issued um, during his presidency. And now we see it in the language um, um, here in Virginia uh, on, you know, what we can't, we can't teach divisive concepts, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. I, I think it eliminates long division. <laughs> but um, just here, here's, here's a take that, I, that in, in, it may be valid, maybe not, but we recall what happened in the summer of, of 2020 where um, people in Richmond and throughout the country, I mean, in Portland, Oregon, where there are very few black people, were marching the streets, while young white people marching the streets on behalf of social justice um, against the monuments. Do you wonder if, if, if any, I mean, I say the backlash is, is obvious, but kind of my 
theory here is that perhaps their parents or other parents saw these young white kids marching on behalf of social justice and, and said, oh, heck no. We, you know, we've got this. We've got to stop this somehow. And now we see these attacks on how race is taught. Do, do you see, is, is, am I far off there? Is there any connection you see or possible connection between what happened two yeah. years ago and what we're experiencing now? I think that's plausible. I mean, every time we make substantial change in our country's history, it is followed by a period of backlash. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, we had Reconstruction and then Jim Crow. Uh, we had the historic election of President Obama followed by Trump. Uh, we had protests following George Floyd's death, and now we're banning the discussion of divisive racial concepts. So sadly, I do think this is a natural phenomenon for us. My hope and my prayer is that the trajectory is maintains in the right direction over the long term, that we ultimately come through this and, and move forward. It's just in my lifetime, this is, this is a, a scary moment um, to see the assault again on truth, on, um, on reality, quite frankly, and this um, aggrieved sense of white fragility that uh, just seems to be so dominating everything that is discussed today. The fragility being an operative word here, we are literally, and this is how ludicrous it is, we are literally trying to protect, say, middle school kids, maybe elementary school kids from learning about a six-year-old black girl, Ruby Bridges, mm -hmm. who went through hell to desegregate a school. Um, a six-year-old kid does this in New Orleans. 12-year-old um, Carol Swan and 13-year-old Gloria Mead, they, <laughs> in Richmond, desegregated Chandler Middle School. Mm -hmm. These are children who went through this, who experienced this. And we feel like our children are too young to learn about it. It's ridiculous. So I, and I'm gonna jump in and ask, Jason, what are the students saying? What are the, what are the, what, are you getting any feedback from the kids or the students? Sorry, I don't want to call them kids from the students about what's happening as they're watching this through the media and on news? Yeah, well, look, I'm literally talking to you from a conference room at George Beth High School where down the hall, Senator Kane is talking to kids in our real Richmond class. And as I was leaving, one uh, expressed her, her frustration, her you know, dismay at this whole divisive concepts thing, um, given the history of Richmond. So our kids are bright and thoughtful and they pay attention and they're frustrated. They're, they, they live the injustices of this history. So the idea of, of sort of ignoring or whitewashing or uh, is ludicrous to them because this is, this is their daily experience. So, yeah, they, they, are, they are none too pleased with the direction of, of things at the state level. This is um, after the Monuments podcast, and it is going to be sent out to all of our markets, which is nationally. We have 77 markets, Jason, in 26 states. If you could leave one message to the nation about education, especially here in Richmond, what would that message be? Teach the truth, the full truth. Respect students for the bright, thoughtful and resilient people that they are and 
be honest about our country, country's racial past, present, so that we can create a much more just and equitable future. It's hard, it's messy, um, but that's what education is all about. Jason Cameras, Richmond Public School Superintendent. We thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you for taking the time to be on the After the Monuments podcast, Real Talk About Race with Michael Paul and I. Appreciate it. My you. pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. After the Monuments is a Virginia Video Network production and produced by Matt Pacilli, Michael Paul Williams, and me, Kelly Lemon. Technical direction and editing from Bill Barksdale, executive production from Paul Farrell, Diane Salvatore, and Paige Mudd. Will Royer provides studio support. Our artwork is by Krishna Mathis. I'm Kelly Lemon, and we'll see you next week on After the Monument.